Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me, now becoming, of course, (laughs) is my good friend, Matthew. Hello. I'm glad you're here again, Matthew. I'm glad I'm here again as well. Did you get schwitzy and sweaty during the heat? Oh, yes. Yeah, because you guys don't have air conditioning in your apartment entirely. We have one one room and the fan broke on the first day and then the the ice breaker, the ice maker broke in the fridge the second day, so it wasn't fun. Oh, my gosh. And did Stephen do all right in the heat? Oh, the poor boy. Yeah. Yeah. He suffered a little. Yeah, he spent most of the time in in the one room with air conditioning. Oh, well, good for him. Smart dog. He is. (laughs) The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some Dark Poutine. It's Dark Poutine, and I helped. You did help. (laughs) Before we launch into the story, we want to say thank you and merci beaucoup to Dark Poutine listener Valerie LeMay for suggesting this case in the case suggestion thread on our Facebook group, Yumberyard 2.0. Our listeners have led me to some interesting stories and down some crazy research rabbit holes like this one. Please keep it up. If you have a case suggestion, please email the show at darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com or join the Yumberyard and make a suggestion there in that thread. Thanks again, Valerie. This story was just too compelling to pass up. On July 3, 1979, a pair of typical Montreal teenagers, Chantal Dupont, 15, and her friend Maurice Marcel, 14, went missing as they walked home from a concert. Their loved ones had no idea what had happened to them. A week later, they heard the news they dreaded. The bodies of Chantal and Maurice were discovered in different spots along the banks of the St. Lawrence River. The details of how the pair ended up in the water and the events leading up to their murders are horrifying. This is Dark Poutine episode 177, the Jacques Cartier bridge murders, Chantal Dupont and Maurice Marcel. The crowds pack the concert venue at La Ronde on Ile Saint-Hélène. The island sits on the St. Lawrence River and connects Montreal and Longueuil by way of the Jacques Cartier Bridge which crosses the island. Everyone was there that night to see French-born singer Gérard Lenormand. It was a mild but overcast night for July. 
Thankfully, there'd been no rain that day. According to an issue of the Montreal Gazette released on that morning, many Canada Day festivities had been rained out two days prior. The article said that, quote, umbrellas had outnumbered flags as Montrealers celebrated Canada's 112th birthday. Also of note in that same publication was a photo of future Prime Minister, seven-year-old Justin Trudeau, playing marbles as his dad, Pierre, who voters had recently ousted as PM, looked on. Among the concertgoers that night were Chantal Dupont and Maurice Marcel. The pair were not a couple. Chantal's boyfriend was actually Maurice's older brother, Yvonne, but as her petite amie was busy that evening, Maurice agreed to accompany Chantal to the concert, along with Chantal's older sister, Sylvie, 17, and several of her pals. Perhaps Lenormand was no Daniel Lavoie, but the two younger teens were not so much into the concert. In fact, they were bored. After a quick salute to the rest of the members of the group, the pair left the concert at around 11 p.m. to make their way back across the Jacques Cartier Bridge and back home to Longueuil. Chantal and Maurice walked off together toward the bridge and were gone. When Sylvie arrived home, without Chantal in tow, the family was immediately concerned for their younger daughter's welfare. Just after midnight, Louis Dupont, Chantal's dad, and Sylvie went out looking for Chantal. During the early part of their search, they retraced Chantal's most likely route home from the concert, taking them back across Jacques Cartier Bridge, not knowing that it would figure so prominently later on, becoming a symbol of sorts to the memories of Chantal and Maurice. Chantal was a good girl, from a decent church-going Catholic family. Her dad was an airplane mechanic and her mom was a homemaker. It was not like Chantal to disappear for any amount of time without letting her folks know where she was. They reported their daughter missing right away. The 15-year-old's parents agonized as the hours turned into days with no word from Chantal nor Maurice. Maurice Marcel also came from a solid family and was a smart young fellow. He loved playing chess and excelled in sciences at school. He had physical challenges due to a form of cerebral palsy, and he was partially paralyzed and walked with a noticeable limp. In a 2009 interview with reporter Michel Wimet for La Presse, Maurice's older brother Yvonne, who was 18 in 1979, and Chantal's boyfriend, spoke of his family's reaction to the disappearance. Translated from French, My mother immediately suspected that something serious had happened, recalls Yvonne Marcille. She knew he had not run away. We imagined the worst. We had a very painful period. We didn't know if Maurice was alive. The day after Maurice failed to return home, Madeline Marcel, his mom, was already disgusted with police who seemed less concerned than she felt was appropriate. She yelled at them when they suggested the teens were probably fine, simply somewhere with friends, and would show up later. She knew differently. Maurice had been excited about his upcoming plans for the week. The grieving mother told La Presse, He even asked me to record him a game of chess on TV. Maurice was a quiet little guy, good at chess, good at school. He loved astronomy, geography, end quote. Maurice's father, Grégoire, recalled his wife's upset with what she perceived as a lack of action by local police. She wanted them to do more, to call out every available member of the Canadian Armed Forces if they could, and use them to search for her son and his friend Chantal. She even reached out to members of Parliament and distributed Maurice's photo to everyone she met during the search. That's the type of mom you want. Yeah, that is the type of mom that right? you want. Right? Like, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine if my kid went missing, I'd be like, 
bring out the National Guard, right? Yeah. Like just every single person, stop what you're doing to help. Mm-hmm. Um, she's great, right? Because, um, uh, you know, police, Mike, as you know, yes, they get tunnel vision sometimes. They definitely do. And it's because they have seen things like this over, over. and over and over again. So it's not, I'm not yeah. dissing the police here. Right. I'm just saying she wanted... She wanted as much help as possible. And you, you, I can't imagine, right, if your child goes missing, mm-hmm. it would be weird to to not, to, to, you'd, you'd think the whole world should stop, right? Right, yeah. Because it's so important. Yeah, because, it, you yeah. know, to to her her 14-year-old son yeah. with had cerebral palsy. Sounds like a great kid, though. Yeah, smart, like smart, smart kid, kid, not smart somebody kid. who would go missing. No, absolutely. He's not, he's not the runaway type right at all, right? No, neither of them were. No, so. Both families and many of their friends pulled out all the stops and put their lives on hold to search for Chantal and Maurice. In the week that ensued, Madeline Marcel was at the end of her rope and willing to try anything to find Maurice. She even considered going to France to enlist the help of a famous psychic who had helped other families find their loved ones. Madeline turned to dowsing by way of a pendulum wrapped in a piece of Maurice's clothing to aid in the search for her son. There is some interesting science to report around this technique, although the jury is still out in regard to its factual efficacy. Using what is called the idiomotor phenomenon discovered in 1852 by psychologist William B. Carpenter, According to a 2005 article by John Jackson of critical-thinking.org.uk, quote, idiomotor actions are unconscious involuntary motor movements that are performed by a person because of their prior expectations, suggestions, or preconceptions. Jackson cites water dowsing with rods as an example that even a complete novice can experience the phenomenon using dowsing rods provided they are aware of an underground water source. He goes on to point out that this is done unconsciously and that the dowser is not consciously forcing the rods to cross. The same phenomenon, it is believed, is behind the movements of the planchette on a Ouija board and the use of a pendulum to determine sex of an unborn child and other related techniques, where bypassing conscious awareness and biases of an individual and tapping into the subconscious might lead to a more effective result. My great-grandfather could do this. Your great-grandfather could yeah. do this. It, and I saw it with my own eyes. It was amazing. So we were building like a patio, mm-hmm. and we needed to know where these tiles under underground were because mm-hmm. we couldn't go. And he just walked out with this V-shaped wood thing and just started walking. It just went zhunk down, and he took a metal rod and went cling, cling, cling. There's one right there, and then kept on going. It, like literally every time he stopped... It was exactly where one of these things that had water in them was supposed to be. That is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I have seen dowsing on television, but I've never seen it live like yourself, yeah. which is, that's kind of cool. That it was you, amazing. That you get to see that. I, I still kind of wonder if, if it's um, like, what is the real science behind it? Because no something's idea. happening. No idea. I, all I know is I saw it with my own eyes. I like idiomotor phenomena though. <laughs> Idiomotor phenomena. Yeah. Um, with, in my case, it would be idiot motor phenomena. <laughs> idiot moron phenomena. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, no. In the case of Maurice Marcel's disappearance, the pendulum pointed toward the waters of the St. Lawrence River. Sadly, a week after his disappearance, that's where Maurice was discovered, just over 24 kilometers down the river from the Jacques Cartier Bridge near Lenore. 
less than 24 hours prior, the body of a female, who would later be identified as Chantal de Pont, was also recovered from the river near Pointe-aux-Trembles in East Montreal. The grim task of identifying the two bodies was left up to the families of the teens. Corpses that have been in the water for a full week in the heat of the summer can decompose quickly. Both the sight and smell of the bodies would have been tough for even the most seasoned death investigators, but for the uninitiated families, it had to be terrifically traumatic. Grégoire Marcille confirmed this in an interview with La Presse. Quote, They opened a drawer, raised the sheet, then you look, he said. It is shocking. The body of a drowned person in the water for a week is all bloated. End quote. Autopsies of Maurice and Chantal revealed that they had both drowned. The injuries on their bodies were also consistent with having fallen from height into the river. Chantal's ribs and spine were broken along with other devastating injuries. Could they have fallen or jumped from the Jacques Cartier Bridge for some reason? A tragic accident? Neither were known to be risk-takers or daredevils. Maybe it was a double suicide. Not likely, as both had lots to live for, plans for the future, and no history of documented suicidal activity or depression. Pathologists determined that there had been foul play. While still alive, both teens had been roughed up and strangled with a ligature, most likely a rope. Both had gone into the water alive and possibly unconscious. Things darkened even further when Chantel's body also revealed that she had been raped before her death. While the post-mortems were being performed downstairs in the morgue, upstairs at 1701 Rue Parthenay, the Montreal headquarters of the Sûreté du Québec, two men were being held in custody on suspicion of another rape and armed robbery on the Jacques-Cartier Bridge. The similarities between that case and this one disturbed detectives, the only real difference being that the other case, having taken place around the same time as the deaths of Chantal and Maurice, is that the one they were being held for had not ended in murder. Having no other leads at all, the homicide detectives responsible for investigating the deaths of the teens decided to question 25-year-old Norman Guerin and his pal, 26-year-old Gilles Pimpare. Pimpare was already on parole for other offenses. Guerin was brought down to an interview room on the first floor of the building. When Guerin was asked to account for his whereabouts on the evening of July 3, 1979, he cracked, instantly admitting to the surprised officers that it was in fact he and Gilles Pimpare who killed Chantel and Maurice. From a Montreal Gazette article by James Quigg, published on November 10, 1979, quote, All we did was ask him where he was on the night of July 3rd, and he started talking. He said he'd read in the papers that the bodies had been found and figured we were on to him, said veteran investigator André Goujon. The quote continued, The whole truth is that Guerin believed that the police knew much more than they really did, but that, explained the detective, is one of the tricks of the trade. Quote, You always try to look confident, even when you don't know a thing. Guerin told them everything they wanted to know, recounting the crimes in horrific detail. And we'll take a break right here. And we're back. Now, what are your thoughts on this episode so far, Matthew? How old were they? 14 and 15? Yeah. Ah, just every time. Ah. Yeah. Because they have, like, they're just at the beginning of becoming their own little human being, like adults, right? Right. And there's so much ahead of them that stories like this always really bother me. They bother me too. Um, It's, it's one of those ones where, 
the more I read about Chantal and Maurice, the more I related to them. Yeah. Um, cause that's kind of the family I came from. Yeah. You know, uh, I can imagine my mom and dad would have, you know, moved heaven and earth to try and find me had something yeah. gone on. So, and you know, they're out at a concert having a good time. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't up to no good. They were like going home. Complete innocence. You know? Complete. It's, you know, not that any victim is ever an not innocent victim, right? But, but yep. this is this is like, come on, these are just young kids, yeah, having a good time, going home, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's just like every time you think, well, how, what did they do to deserve that? Because they yeah. did not, and yeah. and that's the, I guess, the senselessness of crime. Yeah, just people don't do anything to deserve. It just comes out of the blue. Yeah. Right? It's, and I think that's why, I guess I have to believe in evil in a way, Mm -hmm. is the evil of those two individuals who we'll find out perpetrated this crime. Garen's family, although not wealthy, were not violent and abusive in contrast to Gilles Pimperet's horrific upbringing. Norman Garen was close with his four siblings, especially with his identical twin brother. For years after Norman's arrest, people on the street would jeer at his twin brother, recalling Norman's photos from a very public trial for the murders of Chantal and Maurice. Norman's twin eventually died by suicide after ending up in jail himself, committing a crime in a failed attempt to be reunited with his twin brother behind bars. It would be safe to presume that the horror of his brother's crime, the loss of a twin who was tossed behind bars, and the public's continued taunting of him as having the same blood and looks as Normand was too much for him to bear. Norman Guerin was still a young boy when his father died, and he blames that occurrence as the reason for his crime spree, and also claims that he had no real direction after that. Norman's mom tried her best and was concerned for her son early on, especially of his associations with people like Gilles Pimperet. But Norman Guerin was not listening. He was unable to resist a thrill that came with committing more and more violent crime, as well as the lure of drugs and booze. Norman Guerin's mom was devastated after learning of her son's involvement in the horrific crimes and refused to visit him for a time, but later agreed to see him and went to the prison to be with her boy. Pimperet, on the other hand, was a real bad apple, the oldest of the male children in the family with five siblings in total. He'd been in and out of trouble for years, mostly in. Raised by physically and emotionally abusive parents in a poor section of Montreal, Gilles Pimperet was an angry man. Gilles' father, a laborer, would come home cranky and beat up on his kids. Gilles claimed that he often got the worst of it. Gilles passed on the violence received at the hands of his parents like hand-me-downs to the other kids in the family. He was only 12 years old when he threw a knife at one of his sisters and intentionally burned another sister's arm. Pimperet decided to escape from his family home at 14, couch-surfing at houses of anyone who'd take him in. Around that same time, he got into trouble at school. After he beat the crap out of one of his teachers and was sentenced to a stint in reform school, he continued to be a problem there for staff and other students. Around the time of his release from reform school, Gilles Pimperet met Norman Guerin. The two would become partners in crime. They started boosting cars together and committing armed robberies of convenience stores around Montreal. They were high and or drunk as often as they could be. It was 1975 when Gilles Pimperet was caught and convicted for armed robbery and then sent to prison. He managed to escape, but was soon caught again. 
He was loaded all the time when he was free. In 1978, Gilles Pimperet received a 20-month sentence, but knowing how to play the system, he was out in five months thanks to his good behavior. He snowed his parole officers, claiming that he had turned over a new leaf. He said he was going to sell encyclopedias and make a new start in life, but that was all bullshit. Gilles Pimperet was in a bad mood after his release and was looking to take out his frustrations. He called up his old buddy, Norman Guerin, shortly after getting out, and the pair picked up where they had left off. Pimperet and Guerin had been on quite a crime spree that summer, before and after the murders of Chantal and Maurice. Many of those crimes took place on or near the Jacques Cartier Bridge. The Jacques Cartier Bridge, built in 1930, and originally called the Montreal Harbour Bridge, is the third busiest in Canada, with roughly 35.8 million vehicle crossings annually. Pimperet and Guerin knew the bridge well, using a walkway meant for bridge workers underneath the structure as the scene of several crimes. On the evening of June 26, 1979, a 17-year-old boy and his friend left Laurent at about 10 p.m. They were accosted by Guerin and Pimperet, who were armed with a knife and what appeared to be a firearm, but turned out later to be a harmless starter's pistol, of Guerin's. The pair of bandits threatened the youngsters, showing them a rope, saying that they would be strangled with it, and then Pimperet and Guerin robbed the teens before both pairs of young men ran off in opposite directions. At about 12.30 a.m. on June 27, 1979, a 19-year-old woman left Laurent with her male friend. Pimperet and Guerin surprised the couple in the parking lot coming out of the darkness with the same weapons they'd used previously and threatened the younger couple. During that attack, they put a rope around the young woman's neck and sexually assaulted her. Towards midnight on the evening of June 28 to 29, 1979, a 16-year-old girl left Laurent with her half-brother. On the bridge, the teens were attacked by Guerin and Pimperet, who were armed with their firearm and the knife. They dragged the pair to a ladder that led under the bridge to a gangway used by repairmen. Once out of sight of the passing cars, Guerin and Pimperet robbed the young man and raped the girl after showing her a rope and threatening to strangle her with it. Guerin and Pimperet had taken a break for the next couple of days, but on the evening of July 3, 1979, Pimperet called Guerin to invite him out for another night of robbery and rape. And if they got enough cash, maybe later on they'd get a pizza. Guerin gave a detailed account to investigators of how things had gone down on the night of the murders and agreed to lead police through the events on the bridge and just below it. Guerin's detailed signed confession to the horror of the DuPont and Marcel families was leaked and the whole thing was front page news in a few Montreal papers the next day. The bad guys had hidden in a wooded spot behind the bushes and beside the sidewalk leading from La Ronde onto the bridge. They had a great view of La Ronde and could assess victims for some distance as they approached. When the pair of now-practiced criminals saw Chantal and Maurice approaching, they thought at first it was a pair of girls. They allowed the pair to walk past and onto the bridge before running after them and then past Chantal and Maurice and then turn back to confront and assault the teens. The vertical support of the bridge out of the water is made up of a few numbered concrete pillars. It was at Pillar 57 where Chantal and Maurice were first assaulted and then threatened by Guerin, armed with his starter pistol, and Pimperet with his knife and a length of rope. As cars sped by in the darkness, their drivers unaware of the crime that was unfolding, the bandits led the terrified teenagers back to Pillar 111, 
where the bad guys were aware there was a ladder leading down to the catwalk and their little hideout, a platform above the St. Lawrence River and away from prying eyes. Once under the bridge, over the rumble of the cars and trucks above, Garen asked Maurice for any valuables, of which he had none. All the money the teens had between them amounted to only two dollars. Garen led Maurice away down the catwalk, giving Pimperay more privacy with Chantel, who he proceeded to brutally rape over the next 40 minutes. After Pimperay had had his fill, he threatened Chantel to stay put and went to summon Garen and Maurice. It was Garen's turn to rape Chantel. From a Lepress article, quote, The girl was naked except for her panties, and she hid her breasts with her hands, Garen told police. There, Gilles Pimperay told me, it's your turn. There I raped the girl, end quote. Pimperay and Garen then told Maurice that he had to die for what he'd seen, and told him he had to jump, and forced him to climb onto the bridge railing and say his prayers before he went off the bridge into the St. Lawrence around 160 feet below. Garen and Pimperay claimed that Maurice was too afraid and begged to be strangled before being thrown from the bridge, as he had asked to be unconscious, frightened of the fall and subsequent hard landing in the water. Pimperay had gone to work with his rope, taking around five minutes to strangle young Maurice. When his body went limp and he was clearly unconscious, Pimperay then unceremoniously shoved Maurice through the guide wire and watched as the boy's body fell into the river. According to La Presse, when Chantal heard the splash of Maurice's body hitting the water, she said to Garen, You promised me not to kill us. Garen later admitted that his reply was, Well, you just saw someone die. I can't let you go. End quote. Pimperay strangled Chantal unconscious as well, but she did not go out easily. She put up a mighty struggle, according to Garen. When she was unconscious, Garen and Pimperay tossed Chantal's body over and left walking back into Montreal. At around 2.30 a.m., only hours after the murders, Pimperay and Guerin mugged a 65-year-old woman as she was putting the key into the lock to enter her home in Montreal. Pimperay threatened her with his hunting knife and wrapped his rope around the woman's neck and began to squeeze. Guerin interjected and called Pimperay off. According to the survivor of the attack, Guerin had said, no, not a third one. Pimperay stopped his attack and the men made off with the woman's purse, later going to eat pizza with her cash and the two dollars they'd taken from Chantal and Maurice. The next evening, the pair were back at it again, as though nothing had happened the day before. They were even more brazen now. On the evening of July 4, 1979, a male and female, both 17, left La Ronde at about 10 p.m. and walked along the Jacques Cartier Bridge toward Montreal. They were approached by Garin and Pimperay, who were armed with a starter's pistol and a knife. The bandits robbed them and threatened the couple with being thrown over the bridge. Fifteen minutes later came the final assaults, as a 21-year-old man and two teenage female friends left La Ronde. They were on the sidewalk of the Jacques Cartier Bridge, heading toward Montreal when Pimperay and Guerin pounced. The trio were forced to go down under the apron of the bridge to the spot where Chantal and Maurice had been killed the night before. The teens were then robbed. The descriptions of the pair from all these assaults led to Garen and Pimperay being arrested later that week, which is why they were in custody when the bodies of Maurice and Chantel were discovered. Pimperay was not as forthcoming as Garen at first, denying everything. He'd even agreed to a polygraph test to prove his innocence, but failed miserably. After that, realizing he was busted, Gilles Pimperay also confessed. 
Montrealers were horrified by the depravity of these crimes as they read Guerin's confession in the papers in the weeks following the arrests and charges. The pair were called the monsters of the Jacques Cartier Bridge. The bridge also got a lot of attention as a dangerous place as there had been a lot of crimes on and around it in the year prior. Many of those had been sexual assaults, and rape was a big problem in the province that year. In 1979 alone, there had been 228 rapes reported across the province of Quebec. The young men, although they'd confessed, pleaded not guilty to the crimes. There was a quick turnaround for their trial for the murders. Only three months, but in that time, not wanting to face life in prison, Gilles Pimperet made two unsuccessful attempts to die by suicide. The trial was over quickly, and the pair were sentenced to 25 years to life. The evidence was against them, but their defense teams immediately set about appealing the convictions. As the appeal made its way through the courts, the pair were also convicted of the other rapes and assaults and robberies that they'd committed that summer and sentenced to 10 years in prison for those offenses. It was a good thing, too. In 1984, the appeal went through and their conviction in the murders was thrown out and Pimperet and Guerin were set to have a new trial on the killings. It was not that the pair was innocent, but during jury selection, the judge had made improper rulings regarding questioning of potential jurors, costing the Crown their convictions. On October 14, 1984, after their second trial on the murders of Chantal Dupont and, and Maurice Marcel, Norman Guerin and Gilles Pimperet were found guilty a second time and were sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. According to the Montreal Gazette, Andre Vincent, the Crown prosecutor of the second trial, said that the crimes were, quote, the most cruel and the most cold-blooded case you can encounter. At the time of the sentence, Justice Boyard said that he regretted that he could not use the death penalty, nor could he impose two consecutive life sentences before parole eligibility for the killers. The judge also reminded Guerin and Pimperet that they had been treated much better than that they had provided to Chantal and Maurice and their other victims. Prison was not easy for the pair. Pimperet later told a reporter he'd been violently sexually assaulted and beaten up by other prisoners who did not like, quote, skinners, prisoners slang for pedophiles and child killers. Pimperet claimed his conscience kept him awake at night in the multiple decades since his conviction. He also claims he was out of his mind on the night of the murders, high on LSD. The deaths of Chantel and Maurice, he claimed, were accidental. Pimperet's first parole application, coming in 2001, was rejected after the computer used by Pimperet in prison was found to contain 1,500 pornographic photos, including that of, quote, a naked girl with the Jacques Cartier bridge in the background, end quote. Psychiatrists determined that Pimperet's predilections have increased as the years have gone by, and that he had not successfully completed court-mandated counseling in regard to his sexual deviancy. According to La Presse, the same diagnosis came in 2005 and in his 2008 applications for parole. In 2007, a psychological report stated that Gilles Pimperet was, quote, high at risk of violent and sexual recidivism. One excerpt from Pimperet's parole denial reads, quote, Your crime was persistent and aggravating with a sadistic component during the commission of several other crimes. Your potential for violence is very important and any enlargement measure of your freedoms at this stage would not protect society, end quote. According to La Presse, in one hearing, Pimperet talked about what he thought his chances were for parole and that he believed he was rehabilitated. He said, quote, 
I can reassure society I'm convinced that I no longer have problems. I settled them all by myself, end quote. The quote continues, Pimperet was told by Commissioner Marie-Claude Frenette, you need a high level of supervision. Your exit plan is premature and you are thinking magically. She concluded that he lacked maturity. Pimperet shook his head, stunned by the decision. You are the ones who lack maturity, he told commissioners with a touch of aggressiveness. Maurice's mother, now remarried and living abroad, sent a letter about her feelings on whether Pimperet should be released. It read in part, My anger remains intact. I am not inhabited by hatred, but rather by a questioning of still not knowing the truth about these murders or the reasons that led to this tragedy. She continued, Until he recognizes and assumes his criminal acts and takes this inner step, the one that transforms him into a human being, likely to reintegrate into society, I will continue to oppose his release. As of 2014, Gilles Pimperet had applied for and been denied parole six times, but he has since married a woman he was corresponding with during his time in prison. Guerin waited until 2017 before applying for parole himself. He had thought about it before and then backed out at the last minute. He too was denied on his first attempt, but was allowed an escorted visit to see his 83-year-old mother. Practicing what they believed to be true Christian values, Chantal's parents publicly forgave her killers, visiting Gilles Pimperet twice, but maintaining more of a relationship with Norman Guerin and his mother, both of whom they corresponded with often. According to a 2017 La Presse article, Louis Dupont said that he thinks of Guerin and Pimperet every night before falling asleep. Quote, I entrust them to the hands of God, Mr. Dupont stated. But he also said that just because he forgives does not mean he feels less pain even after all these years. Maurice's mom, Madeline, has not forgiven. Referring to Pimperet after one of his parole hearings, she said, He's a psychopath. In my opinion, he should not be let out. Madeline and her family think of Maurice every time they see the Jacques Cartier Bridge. In effect, it has become a massive memorial for her son and a painful reminder of what happened to him. And that's it for episode 177, The Jacques Cartier Bridge Murders, Chantal Dupont and Maurice Marcel. What are your thoughts on this story, Matthew? Um, specifically, I had a little bit of concern with the idea that uh, Pimpare strangled these two kids mm. as a mercy before tossing them over the bridge into the water. He doesn't have the right to say what he did or didn't do for mercy for either of these yeah. people. They're not around to, he to is verify that. Not at all. They have, they, he has no right to even begin to talk about mercy or to talk about, you know, what they felt or thought or said. Yeah. He has no right at all. Yeah. Right. Yep. Fair enough. And, uh, Chantel's parents mm. forgave the killers and even kept in contact with them. They visited Pimperate at least twice and Garen they visited multiple times right. and he interacted with them, corresponded with them via letters, phone calls, all those kind of things. Mm. They uh, call his, called his mother regularly. What, how, do you think you could get there? If somebody, somebody murders Justin. Don't say that. Well, okay. Yeah, <laughs> let's not say that. So someone in your family is murdered. Right. Who you love very much. Mm. Um, could do you think that forgiveness is a possible thing for you? I know for me, it would be something I would attempt. 
because of my, I would want to release the anger right. because uh, it's unhealthy for me. And there you go. Forg yeah. Forgiveness is for you. Yeah. It's, it's about freeing you, not about freeing them. Right. Because they right. have to deal with the, what they've done regardless. And, it's between their ears. Exactly. And, mm. and forgiveness is for them. Yeah. So people, you know, sometimes I've seen people get angry at other people who like have forgiven killers of their kids or family members. Yeah. I'm like, no, that's deeply personal. That's up to them. Right. And I would l like to think that I'd have the higher mind to get to that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd, I don't know. I would work on it. I, I would, I would work on it. Yeah, I don't Be know because if he's holding on to that stuff. Yeah, it just would slowly kill you as well, right? Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, um, I have held resentment before mm. in my life, and it, it was literally killing me. What's that old saying? It's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it'd be hard, though. Yeah, I mean, it would still be painful. Um, mm. um, Louis. Uh, the pain would never go away. Yeah, Louis Dupont talks about. Um, Actually, it was Mr. DuPont talks about, um, still feeling pain, mm -hmm. uh, for the, for his daughter being gone so young, mm. uh, but he doesn't feel the hatred and the anger anymore. Life is pain, but life doesn't have to be hatred. Right. Yeah. Right. I think it's actually quite a beautiful thing that he got to that point. Do you have any other sort of comments on this? It's just such a waste. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, you've probably said this in many shows, but you know, the more that I do them, the more I sit there and just go, oh my God, it was such a waste. And these, these guys were like just terrorizing that area. Yep. Like all the shit they were getting up to. Mm -hmm. Just like, that's just unfathomable. So yeah, it was more than, I mean, the, the two victims who died uh, were obviously that that is the biggest tragedy out of the whole mm. thing, but then there were these uh, nine other people I know it's who just... were a part of this case, sort of tangentially, yeah, um, and a part of their own cases uh, it, directly, and they they had to go on with their lives too, knowing that two killers had done that to them, and it's just and you've talked about this before the ripple effect. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, as you know, I'm doing some research with you right now on some other stuff. And, yep. and you, you, when you start, when you do this research, you, you see, it's not just that one victim. It, it's this whole ripple effect yeah. that goes through them, their families, their friends, even if you weren't killed or hurt, but if you're robbed, then suddenly you're like not trusting anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's just all, it's so much negativity that comes out of it. Yeah. I talked about that. Uh, with what I went through with my monster. Yeah. After that, I had trouble. I have trouble still with somebody standing behind me yeah. um, because of uh, that event. If somebody is standing behind me, I feel like I have to turn and face them because yeah. I get very anxious. And we were, we were robbed once in London. I was flying back mm -hmm. uh, from east somewhere in London and Justin was upstairs. Somebody broke into the house and he chased them out. Oh, wow. And since that day, Justin, like, we have like a patio door on the 39th floor to the balcony mm -hmm. that he locks that night. Nobody, like, Spider-Man would be able to get in. <laughs> yeah. He still locks it, though, yeah. because of this happened. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's fear is not a logical response. No. Uh, and it's a response to trauma, usually. Yeah. 
Yeah. He was alone in the house. It was scared the shit out of him. He did run partway naked down the street chasing the guy there. <laughs> well, that's funny. It's hilarious, isn't it? And and Justin can run too, so. Yeah, he's in shape. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, let's move on to voicemails. Uh, if you're so inclined, you can leave us a message at one eight seven seven one one eight seven seven. What's that number again? <laughs> oh, fuck. One eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. P T N. If you're stumped for what to chat about, um, a quick story is welcome. Try to keep it under two minutes, and often the best ones have been written out beforehand. We'd love to hear from you, regardless even if it's just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. Um, here's our voicemails. Um, this first one is somebody who I didn't know before, so let's listen. Hey, Mike and Matthew. Uh, this is Cole calling. Uh, I've been listening to the show for quite some time, but I've never gotten around calling until now. Uh, Dark Poutine was the first podcast I listened to. Uh, still my favorite. You know, I look forward to every episode. Every Monday, um, Mike, you may actually remember meeting me and my girlfriend at the live show in Vancouver. Um, I was the guy who grew up in Vanderhoof where the case you guys took place uh, occurred, and uh, that's actually where I'm calling from right now, um, up in Vanderhoof. Anyway, I uh, just wanted to say I love the show. I look forward to it. Uh, keep up the good work, and uh, if you guys could do me a favor, just... Uh, you take the nearest piece of headwear you have and uh, lay a steamer in it for me. Thanks, boys. <laughs> lay a steamer in it for lay, me. Lay a steamer. Is it, his name is Cole? Yes. That's a good name. I remember him and that's his girlfriend. Yeah. yeah. It's so, like solid Cole. Right? It's a Cole. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good. Yeah. He could be like, like Hollywood. He wouldn't have to change his name. Cole. Like Cole. Yeah. Yeah. My name is not very Hollywood. Mike Yours is pretty Brown. good. Matthew Stockton. I wanted to change my name to Maximilian when I was a kid. Oh, gee. <laughs> wow. Where did that come from? The movie. Black Hole. Black Hole. Yeah. The, the, the evil, the evil thing. Max, Max Shell. I wanted to be called and I wanted it shortened to Max Metropolis. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Max Metropolis. My nephew's name is Max. Okay. Yeah. Is it short for Maximilian? I don't know. Six. <laughs> Call and ask. I could call and ask, but I didn't. Let's call them now live. No, let's not. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if they'd answer because it would come up like unknown number. Oh. Yeah. There's all, yeah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's for another episode. Here's our next voicemail. And this one came to us a couple of weeks ago. Take a shit in your hat. Okay. Now that I got that over with. Uh, my name is Christine. I called in last week, but I couldn't spit out my message properly. So here's take two. I am a housekeeper and I listen to podcasts while I work. Thank you for keeping me entertained and passing the time as I scrub poop out of toilets. Back in 1999, I had my first son. He was maybe a month old when one day my husband, who was is now my ex-husband, left our apartment to go get some groceries and was violently pulled from his bicycle and thrown to the ground and held at gunpoint by several police officers. Knowing nothing about this, I received a phone call 
from the police telling me to find some shelter with my baby away from the inside walls of the building as there was an armed man somewhere in the building. Freaked right out, I held my baby and hid beside my bed by the window. And about half an hour later, police officers came into my apartment and escorted me out of the building and down the road where I found my neighbors all gathered in a yard waiting. Inside the building in the apartment across from me, they found the armed man hiding inside a couch. And I still don't understand what that means, how somebody can actually be in a couch. Um, the man was Stephen Reed, and this was his last bank robbery that took place in Victoria. There was a car chase with gunfire through the streets of my neighborhood, and then he managed, dressed in a police uniform, to get into my apartment building. Uh, so yeah, I am appreciative of your episode on the Stopwatch Gang. I found it very interesting, and uh, I feel like I am part of that story in some weird, random way. I hope you guys are surviving in the heat and keep up the good work. Take care. Bye. Well, thank you so much. I like that you got a, a go shit in your hat prior. I know. It's like, okay, I'm going to get out of the way. Okay. So, Christine, first of all. Yeah. Um, whoever you're cleaning house for should like semi clean the toilet before. Right. I do that. I would not leave it to Helga. No, I would do that too. Second thing is, I actually know how you hide in a couch. How do you hide in the couch, <laughs> my, Matthew, and how do you know this? Because my aunt and my brother used to intentionally fold me up into the fold-out couch and then sit on it and not let me out when we were kids. Oh, no. So maybe this guy was super skinny. Yeah, Stephen Reed. I don't think he was super okay. skinny. He was, he's a large-sized man. Yeah, but so. I've, and I've seen, a few, I've seen a few shows where people are hiding in couches. Mm -hmm. See, they're under cushions, but this was, if you can actually, I don't recommend this, and if your kids are doing it, it's probably not that safe because there's like metal pieces that close down. Right. But, but I used to get folded up into the couch as a kid. So it's cool. We had a phone call from somebody who was sort of involved in the stopwatch and gang across, case. She's at home with her kid when this psycho sort of across the hallway. Right. Why? I don't understand why she, he, her husband got pulled off the bike. Well, they probably thought he might be the guy. Okay. Yeah. So, um, I got another email or another email from somebody who was really upset that I said that the stopwatch gang was nonviolent. Mm -hmm. They were. When they did their crimes, there was no shooting. Nobody got hurt ever. They just yelled and held they the guns. They just yelled and held guns. However, mm. yes, you are correct, person who emailed me. Mm. Stephen Reed did shoot and cause a lot of terror uh, when he was trying to get away from people during that bank robbery. So I was correct by saying that the stopwatch gang... Did not create any havoc. Oh, so this was Stephen Reed from the Stopwatch Gang that was across the hall, hall from her. So I just picked up on that. <laughs> <laughs> I know another Stephen Reed, and I was wondering if it was him. So again, Sorry, this I'm a is bit slow. This is this is uh, a dark poutine podcast. We are not professionals. <laughs> so Matthew's losing his mind. <laughs> Such a dick. That is really funny. <laughs> Like I, how many times she said it, I, know, I said it. I know, Yeah. Matthew doesn't pay attention. I don't have enough caffeine in my system. Oh, right it's now. okay. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, so if you want to leave a voicemail that Matthew won't listen to, 
You can call one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. P T N. Yeah. Uh, now on to patron and uh, donut money donors. First up, we have Jazra from Chilliwack, British Columbia. Jazra, what does Jazra do there in the the WAC? She is the head of the Chilliwack, as in the band fan club. Chilliwack. Oh, the band. Yeah. Oh, gone, gone, gone. She been gone so long. Gone, 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 gone so long. Gone so yeah. long. Yeah. yeah. My girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, music. That was me. You know, Steve is from Chilliwack. Your dog. Yeah. Is was he a member of the band? Yeah, he was. He's a drummer. <laughs> With his short little paws. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think you just told me a story. I made it up. And, oh, guess what? So, remember we heard from Cole. Yep. In uh, our voicemails. Mm-hmm. Well, Cole's also a patron now. Yay! Cole Thank Daniel you, Cole. from Vanderhoof, British Columbia. So, Excellent. what does Cole do up there in Vanderhoof? I, you know, I, th- I think he does something like... He's either like rides a horse. <laughs> Cole, yeah. A guy right? named Cole should ride a with, horse. With like a Stetson hat. Uh, uh, yeah. But it's got like a little bit of a, there's a bullet hole through it. Maybe. Yeah. Well, no, nobody would shoot at Cole. He's a good guy. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, so he rides a horse. That's not a job. Well, it is, I guess, technically. Well, he's like could... a ranger sort of thing. That's oh, what I think okay. Is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So he's out ranging. Yeah. <laughs> Wearing those chaps. Chaps? Are there pants on underneath the chaps? Jeans, jeans. Okay, because there are chaps that... Well, all chaps, by their nature, are assless, but you're supposed to wear your jeans underneath them. Right. Anyway. Do you have chaps? (laughs) No, I don't have chaps. Have you ever? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Oh, you heard it here first, (laughs) folks. Matthew has owned a pair of chaps in the past. Assless chaps. Wow, boy. Anyway, we've just we've just made Cole seem all dirty somehow. He's not though. I know. He's I, a good guy. He's a patron I, I, I of the was, show. I was saying he's like a he's like a he like keeps he keeps the place safe up there. Good. Yeah. Thanks, Cole, and thank you for becoming a patron. Thank you, Cole. Next we have from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Stay away from those tornadoes down there. Sarah Darby. Sarah Darby. What does Sarah do in Tulsa? She runs the Oklahoma Derby. What's the Oklahoma Derby? Well, it's like the Kentucky Derby, but it's in Oklahoma. But that's a derby, not a derby. If you're, you're North American, it's a derby. If you're from the UK, it's a derby. Oh, really? Yes. Well, you're a fancy man. So she runs the Oklahoma Derby. Yep. But... Don't they run pigs instead of horses? Ostriches. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Ostrich. You know you can be kicked to death by one kick from an ostrich. <laughs> Just the one kick. Just one kick. Kablooey. Wow. Yep. <laughs> and is that just a random piece That's of stuff? That's just a random fact. I, I think I saw that drop out of the sky and it, enter your head. Uh, it, things often do. <laughs> I'm sure that'll be a meteor one day that does that. <laughs> yeah. Oof. And uh, here we have one that I am not entirely sure who this person is because their name on Patreon is only Carbon Operator. Carbon Operator. Yeah, so Carbon Operator is now a patron of the show. Is it 
uh, sort of a play on human beings or is it? Carbon operator. Yeah, I'm trying to figure it out. What does carbon operate? Well, where's carbon operator from, first of all? Pie Town, New Mexico. Pie Town, New Mexico. Wow. So what does carbon operator do? Makes pies. Well, that makes sense. There's a pie town in New Mexico. How cool is that? And does it have a pie shop? It does. <laughs> I think that's all there is. <laughs> that's all there is is a pie shop. Well, thank you, carbon operator. And also we missed uh, a patron uh, who was one of our donut money donors in May. And it came by way of the Interac transfer. Okay. And her name is Catherine McGuire. Hello, Catherine McGuire. Where's Catherine from? She's from Fort Stockton. Oh, are, is that some where your family hails from? Or It used to be called Camp Stockton, and yeah. funnily enough, so did I. Yes. <laughs> you are a campy Stockton. I can be. She's from Fort Stockton. I think that's in Texas. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, what does she do there? Guards the fort. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah. You got to do it. So thank you, Catherine. Uh, we wanted to mention before we close out the show uh, about the wildfires that happened in, are happening right now in British Columbia. There's 77 of them right now. Yeah, it's horrific. Um, on June 30th, a wildfire broke out and devastated the community of Lytton, BC. As many as, as many as 1,500 residents have been, had been told to evacuate with as little as 15 minutes notice. Um, they had to leave uh, and flee without their belongings um, so GoFundMe has set up the enough, entire town burned down. The entire town is gone. Like literally the entire town is gone. Sorry, Mike. Go yeah. So GoFundMe has set up, uh, an official site mm. where you can go and donate to victims of the Lytton wildfire. So I will share the link in our show notes, but, uh, in the meantime, in the meantime, um, you can go to. Uh, go fund me and just put in Lytton Wildfire and you'll find it. L-Y-T-T-O-N. That's right. And um, they have currently raised $330,000 of a $400,000 goal. So a lot of people are being very generous. So, wow, that was tough. Thank you to, okay. Thanks to all our donut money donors and, and patrons, uh, past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Don't forget my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available for pre-order on a link at the Dark Poutine website. And uh, speaking of our website, check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take your time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye. Goodbye.
new on Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.